the rhythm of, of desperation and deliverance. And I pray now that I would begin to sense your deliverance as I've been desperate all week for your help to understand this, to stay close to your word, to feed your people whom I love. Would you, would you help us, Lord? And would you give us uh, the insight that we need into this scripture to see how rich we are when it comes to the, the topic of diversity in the body of Christ and the, and the ways that you've gifted us to serve, to bring glory to you and to build one another up. So we need your help for that. Holy Spirit, would you come and, and be pleased to bring illumination uh, to the very work that you do in our lives to uh, equip us for all that we are called to do. Come now, Holy Spirit. We lean on you for Jesus' sake. Amen. In his book, Pastoral Graces, Reflections on the Care of Souls, uh, my mentor and dear friend, Lee Eklov, writes, Picture an upward road crowded with an unchained gang of captives, newly taken slaves who sing free at last, and he has made me glad. They delight to see out ahead of them their conquering Christ. The captive church, including us, parades toward paradise. But unnoticed by most of our brothers and sisters in their upward journey, Christ in his Emmaus disguise slips in and out among us, Here he taps someone on the shoulder and points to the side of the road. There he slips in behind others and whispers to them. Their puzzled look says, who, me? And he nods. Everyone on the highway was taken captive by Christ, thank God, and now some are captured again, captives twice over. What does Jesus do with these captive captives? He outfits them with the word, and he gives them back to his upward-bound church as gifts. Eklov writes, There is no earthly reason why the Lord pulled these particular captives out of the company of the heaven-bound and set the word burning on their tongues. All our saintly siblings are gifted by Christ to serve one another in his body, surely as we are. And yet these captives know, if they have their wits about them, that like a turtle on a fence post, they didn't get where they are by themselves. In fact, to say that God called them seems a tame way of describing what happened. Collared or captured is more like it. And with those vivid word pictures, Lee Eklov not only paints a portrait of our text today, Ephesians 4, 7 to 12, but he also exercises his considerable spiritual gift of teaching as he does it. He's a a gifted pastor teacher, perhaps the greatest I have ever had the privilege to know personally. As Ephesians 2.10 says, he is God's workmanship, and I thank God for Lee. As as much as I try to emulate him, I can't. He's, He's one of a kind. I told Lee through an email yesterday, Lee, when Jesus made you, he he broke the mold. But if you're a Christian here today, the same is true of you.
When Jesus made you, he broke the mold. Last week, we began our study of Ephesians chapter 4 with a look at what God says in his word about local church unity. In the church, unity is something we actually get to do because of what God in Christ has already done. So through his cross, Jesus made unity, but it's ours to maintain. Through the pouring out of his spirit, Jesus created unity, but it's ours to keep. When you are united to Christ, you are by definition united to other Christians. I'm looking at Mike Kolstock right now, and I remember when you came to Christ, you told me your neighbor said, you got to go to church, right? Right after you came to Christ, got to go to church. We are united to other Christians, so we must cultivate unity's practical fruits and demonstrate and celebrate unity's doctrinal roots. In the church, as I've been thinking about this over the last couple of weeks, I I have the sense that unity just ought to enjoy a pride of place far greater than it does in the church today. True biblical unity, I think, has fallen on hard times. Unity, on the one hand, is too often minimized by those of us with more conservative instincts, and yet I think unity is terribly trivialized by those with more liberal theological instincts. But unity in Christ is the first practical order of business in this opening section of application of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. So that's where we were last week. Unity in Christ. Now, notice we're not studying uniformity in Christ or homogeneity in Christ, which brings us to today's topic. Jesus Christ is the architect of our church's unity, yet we do well to recognize his good design, his very good design in our diversity. As I look around this congregation this morning, that is borne out. Jesus Christ is the architect of our church's unity, but we do well to recognize his good design in our diversity. Scripture places a premium on unity. We ought to recognize that. And yet here in today's text, the emphasis is not on unity but on diversity, on variety and multiplicity. This morning, it's our privilege to consider together the teaching of Ephesians chapter 4 as it relates to spiritual gifts in the life of the local church. This is the third time I've had the opportunity to address this particular topic as the ministry of the word has occurred in this local church. Uh, First time I had the opportunity to preach on spiritual gifts was the fall of 2007 as we were studying Romans. Second time was the fall of 2010 when we worked our way through 1 Peter. And now here in the fall of 2014, I got another crack at it, another chance. And it couldn't come on a better Sunday because we now have kickoff Sunday in the rear view and the fall ministries are beginning to launch. The nominating committee is making its deliberations and the sign-up sheets are in Fellowship Hall. This was not my design, actually. Evidently, it was the Lord's. This is a perfect moment to sit carefully under the Lord's teaching on this vital topic of spiritual gifts. So Jesus is the architect of our church's unity, absolutely. Yet we do well to recognize his good design in our diversity. So here's the first of three points today. Point number one. Each and every one of us in Christ have gifts endowed by Christ 
himself. Now, technically, I think I got the grammar incorrect, because Word called me on it Friday when I was writing this. Have ought to be has. Each one of us in Christ has gifts, endowed by Christ himself. So if that drives you crazy, you can make the change to your outline. Either way, look with me now at Ephesians 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, the first thing to notice in this section of Scripture is the change in focus of the Apostle Paul from unity in verses 1 to 6 to diversity beginning in verse 7. In verse 6, we saw the sixfold affirmation that there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and in all and through all. What a mega statement about unity, of agreement. He's striking the note of harmony and accord. So we're just soaring heavenward with this spectacular pronouncement of our unity in Christ. And then in verse 7, we see, but, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul speaks similarly in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, and 1 Corinthians 12, 11, where he writes, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each individually as he wills. And whether we refer to them as gifts of the Holy Spirit or spiritual gifts or the grace that Christ gives to each one of us in his church, we're talking about the same thing. Each and every one of us in Christ has gifts endowed by Christ himself. So Christ is the architect of our unity, and he also has designs on our diversity. Spiritual gifts are gifts of grace given by Jesus to each of us who are united to him. And that stands to reason, because to be united to Jesus is to be joined to one who is full of grace, to quote John 1.14. And it is grace that he is more than anxious to impart to each one of us. The image in verse 8 is drawn from Psalm 68.18. And to understand it properly... For it to land on us the way that Paul intends it to land, we've got to remember that when Christ rescues a person from sin, at that very same time, he also re-enlists him to sainthood. The very moment that Jesus sets us free from death, he also conscripts us to life. So we read in Romans 6, 18, that when we are in Christ, we are set free from sin, and at the same time, we become slaves to righteousness. That's the picture of Psalm 68, 18, and that's the picture here in Ephesians 4, 8. The King James gets the nuance beautifully when it says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive. Exactly. You have no choice but to be a captive in this life. The question is, who are you serving? In the ESV, we read Ephesians 4, 8, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. And then that operative phrase, he gave gifts to men. I hope that you would see in verses 7 and 8, something that we say often around here, I find myself almost weekly these days, talking about grace, not just as pardon, but as power. 
When we use the word grace in conversation, we're typically thinking of that disposition of God whereby he grants us clemency and mercy and absolution. And no doubt that is one way that the grace of God functions. That's the first way that it it functions in our lives. And if you find yourself with us today and you are not a Christian, this is the way that you need grace to function for you in this moment right now. If you walked in today a slave to your selfish desires, a slave to the seduction of the world, and a slave to the schemes of the enemy of your soul, I'm inviting you right now in this moment to turn from your sin and to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the king, and he proclaims liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. It's my privilege to announce to you this morning, if you came in here separated from Christ, that you can be united to him this morning by grace through faith. And the gospel is not behave, it's believe. Believe in Jesus. Become a captive to Christ. And that's the first way that grace functions in our lives. But here... In Ephesians 4, 7, and 8, and in much of the New Testament, grace is not God's forgiveness toward us, but the force of God in us. He gave gifts to men means that he gave abilities. He gave proficiencies. He gave capacities. So first he saves us from our misery, and then he enlists us to the ministry. What Paul says here in Ephesians 4, 7 and 8, Peter puts this way in 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever serves in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And then we have that cryptic statement, don't we, in verses 9 and 10, the one in parenthesis. It's Paul's parenthesis that sometimes drives us bonkers. What's he talking about? Lots of folks wonder what this is about, and the more I think on it, I don't think Paul meant it to be very complicated, actually. Uh, In verse 8, Paul affirms the truth of the ascension of the risen Lord, right? When he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. So he just affirmed the ascension of the resurrected Christ. And so in verses 9 and 10... He simply reminds his readers of our Lord's incarnation. His incarnation preceded his exaltation. Humiliation came before glorification. Before the crown came the cross. And so Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 9, and 10, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And the pattern is here the same for us. The recipients of these gifts, and if you know Jesus, you have at least one of them. You need to remember the example of the giver. Our God-given gifts are not a portion so that we might become puffed up, but so that we might be brought low. Grace was given each one of us, not to steamroll one another, but to serve one another according to the measure of Christ's gift. I mean, the wonder of it, not just to be saved, 
but to get the opportunity to serve in the forward motion of this mission. So do you know your gifts? As I said, if you're in Christ, you have at least one, likely more than one, maybe far more than one. If you're not sure what your gifts are, have you ever asked God what your spiritual gifts are? You ought to. What are you good at? What do you like to do? What have others been blessed by as you've used your abilities? What have people said about your strengths? What would you like to try if there were only the opportunity to try it? in the local church for the glory of Christ? What obvious needs do you currently see in our church? I hope you see needs. I look around our church, I just see needs. Have you ever thought that you may be the one to meet that need? Have you ever been tapped on the shoulder to serve in the life of this church? You may be soon, if you haven't. Each and every one of us in Christ has gifts endowed by Christ himself. He intends for you to know what those gifts are. Second point today. Each and every one of us in Christ must be equipped by servants of the word of God. Each and every one of us in Christ must be equipped by servants of the word of God. Now let's look at verse 11 into the first half of verse 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints. Hold it up there. The opening phrase in verse 11, and he gave, brings us back to verse 8 before Paul started his parenthesis where we read, he gave gifts to men. It's the last thing he said before his parenthetical comment about the incarnation and exaltation of Jesus. He gave gifts to men. And now in verse 11, we see him pick up that theme again, where he says, and he gave. And then we read of five offices or five examples of gifts that Christ gave to his church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, this list has not been without its controversy in the history of the church or the history of this church. Because this list in verse 11 contains not only what we might call ordinary gifts, like evangelist and shepherd and teacher, but also extraordinary, more miraculous giftings, like apostle, prophet. Now, there is no way that I could say everything that I would like to say, nor probably should I say everything I'd like to say this morning on this topic. When you preach on something over a decade in the history of the church, you're, you're, I hope anyway, like me, and as you listen to preaching, you're growing and you're filling out your theology and you're coming to a, a, a clearer understanding of these things. And I've given much study and prayer over the last year or so on this topic. And no matter what I say here, I will likely leave you wanting a lot more, which is why I've set up the community group study questions as I have. It's, it's one effort to contain within this week's study guide a list of 21 statements that I believe 
set our church's approach, its framework for what's sometimes called the cessationist, continuationist debate. Just the, just the question of whether or not certain miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit still continue in this age. It seems tragic to me that people who can otherwise shake hands on the Bible's teaching about the person and the work of the Spirit would draw daggers when it relates to the gifts of the Spirit. There's something off about that, something that grieves me and I believe grieves the Spirit. The historic view, for what it's worth, in the Evangelical Free Church of America is, is the view that we are open but cautious in regard to the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. Neither cessationist nor charismatic, but open but cautious. Now that may sound to you like a view just with its feet firmly planted in midair, just unhelpful. I've thought that too in the past. And yet the more I think about this debate and the more that I talk to folks that are dug in strongly, um, purposefully on one side or the other, the more I have grown to see the wisdom of this view in recent years, in really recent months. So, for example, embracing the open but cautious view as a fellowship is one way for folks who are committed on either side of this debate to know that they are understood and taken seriously, not alienated in this church. Not to mention the majority of us in this church that would likely fall in that broad middle. Those who pitch toward cessation appreciate our caution. And those who pitch toward uh, the continuation of the gifts and the charismatic view are very grateful for our openness. We don't slam the door on that. So here's my two-part recommendation. First, approach the discussion of the nature of the gifts of the Spirit while exhibiting the marks of the fruit of the Spirit. In your families, in your groups, and with your friends in this church, discuss the gifts of the Spirit, loaded, full to overflowing, with the fruit of the Spirit. Now, which fruits in particular? My suggestion is the ones that are built right into verses 2 and 3 in this text. Imagine a discussion on this topic with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of, the peace, in bond of peace. So demonstrate the fruit as you discuss the gifts. That's recommendation number one. Recommendation number two is simply this. Start with the 21 statements in your community group study guide. It's my belief that working through that list with other folks that love Jesus and are committed to him in this church will wonderfully disarm the discussion by showing how very much we have in common. I'm not willing to say there's nothing left on the matter once you've worked through those 21 issues. It's just that I've been amazed as I've studied and talked with people who love the Lord and love their Bibles how very much unity actually exists on this issue. Much of it, though not all of it, comes down to how we define different terms and describe different experiences. So, work through the 21 statements on the study guide alongside others in this church, another reason to join a group, and see if you don't agree with the heartbeat of every single one of those statements. They're, they're 21 denials, actually, is what they are, that I think reveal a consensus that already exists. So, what can be said positively about verse 11? Well, let's look at it this way. Let's ask this question. What do these folks have in common? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. What do they have in common? What's, what's shared 
by these folks. Each of them, every last one of them, are gifted in the word. They are word workers. In fact, over the last few minutes, I've used my word gift of teaching to explain the issues on the table in a particular debate here. Those last three words in verse 11, shepherds and teachers, might well be one gift, one office. That's the way that I, I think I lean. That's the, the grammar that Paul uses, slip, uh, tips slightly in that direction. Uh, you may want to consult the footnote in your Bible that has it as pastor teachers or shepherd teachers. That The point is this, that of all the captive captives on the mission to be and make disciples of Jesus, he takes some from the front lines and pulls them back behind the lines as resourcers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You see it there in verse 12? Shepherds and teachers are to equip the saints. Pastors aren't ministers so much as they are equippers, trainers, outfitters. Few ideas do greater damage to the church than the fiction that pastors are the ones who are supposed to do all the ministry. As Andrew Carnegie once said, I don't make steel. I make men. They make steel. Exactly. Same thing with pastors. We don't do the work of ministry so much as we equip the saints for the work of ministry. And that would include how to think about miraculous gifts and how to be equipped to use your own. Each and every one of us has gifts endowed by Christ himself, and we must be equipped by servants of the word. So if you know your ministry competencies, are you growing in your theological convictions and your Christian character? Pastors are given to equip your heads and your hearts as well as your hands. Which brings us to our final point today. Each and every one of us in Christ get to be engaged in the ministry of the local church. Each and every one of us in Christ get to be engaged in the ministry of the local church. So spiritual gifts from endowment to equipment to engagement. Notice the purpose of the gifts is unfolded in the back half of verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The goal of gifts is bodybuilding, strengthening and fortifying and immeasurably enriching the church of Jesus Christ. When a church is committed to gift-based serving, we see that we get the right people in the right places for the right reasons so that Christ can receive greater glory. And there's nothing like it when people have that attitude about their gifts and as they deploy their gifts. Each Friday, our gifted administrator, Kara Kaler, sends out a reminder email to those who are serving on a Sunday morning. And each of the elders get tagged on the email so that we know who's serving week to week. Uh, the emails are different depending upon who the individual is that's serving and in what capacity they're going to serve. But there's one thing that remains constant about her emails in every single email, and it's the phrase, get to. She's done it from the very beginning, get to. Cheryl, you get to serve in the nursery this morning. 
Brianna, you get to serve in children's church alongside your husband. Seth, you get to read scripture. Andy, you get to be the usher. Greg, you get to be the elder available for prayer. Clearly, it's intentional. It's very subtle, and it's very wonderful. It's a wonderful reminder of the honor, pleasure, joy, and privilege of using our gifts, equipped for the work of ministry, and then engaged in the life of the local church. So do you know your gifts? If you can check that box, then are you equipped to serve? And if you've heard 300 sermons from this pulpit, you are. Most of you have. The last question is, are you investing your gifts in the local church? What's the Spirit saying to you right now through this text of Holy Scripture? Do we have all hands on deck? Each and every one of us in Christ get to be engaged in the ministry of the local church. So Jesus Christ is the architect of our church's unity. We do well to recognize his good design in our diversity. Each and every one of us are endowed with gifts by Christ himself. Each one of us get to be equipped by servants of the word of God, and each and every one of us get to be, get to be engaged in the ministry of the local church. So do you know your gifts? Are you honing your gifts? Are you investing your gifts? The heartbeat of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is union with Christ. Last week, unity in Christ. This week, diversity in Christ. Next week, we'll land the plane with a discussion of maturity in Christ. From unity to diversity to maturity. Right now, let's pray.